need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Hey everyone, it's Lina with you today on China Business Cast. Thank you for joining. I feel that today is the most amazing episode so far for me. We were able to create more than nine hours of content about China market for a 150-year-old Japanese corporation. It took us one and a half years to design a training program that is used to develop the best of the best of decision makers in the corporate world. And we are allowed to share some of that content with the listeners of China Business Cast. During the process of creating this content, I got very surprised that a global corporation wants to understand China market for its highly developed and unique ecosystem. They're trying to learn how to be more agile, how to be more flexible, how to develop faster. And so today, firstly, I will be talking to the project manager on the Japanese side. Aiste is also coming from Lithuania, just like me, and I think this was the key reason why her and me were able to complete this project because of multiple, multiple cross-cultural understandings and misunderstandings. It was very funny. She's living in Japan for the past 12 years, and uh, sometimes we couldn't find the right words in English, so we would just be sending each other Chinese or Japanese characters to be able to communicate. <laughs> so, yeah. First, I will be talking to her, and she will be sharing a little bit of why this experience was important for the corporation and for her organization. And later, we will be sharing some parts of uh, our training program, namely the question and answer sessions between the leaders and people practicing business in China and the participants of the training from the Japanese corporation. We are very happy to be able to share this valuable content with you today. I hope you enjoy. Please subscribe and follow us. We are going to be opening multiple social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and so on. And we hope that more and more people will be able to understand how to do business in China. So I hope you enjoy. Oh, yeah, because it was kind of a teleconference environment with uh, 40 people joining from all kinds of places all over the world. The audio quality will not be perfect, but I think the content will be worth it. So stay tuned and let me know how you like it. Amazing to talk to you today. I'm very, Same very here. proud that two Lithuanian ladies working far, far away from home. You were working in Japan for how many years? I think I was there in total 14 years. 14 years. Yeah. So I've been working in China for 12. And so we got uh, to do this completely amazing global educational program for 150-year-old Japanese corporation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's almost precisely described. I think for me, it was fascinating to see how beneficial it is to have another person from your own culture leading the project on your side. And that kind of made it work in a way that wouldn't have been possible probably if I was talking directly to a Japanese representative. 
So I could see that uh, I learned also a lot from this cross-cultural training, even about other cultures, not only Chinese culture. So today I would like to discuss more about the, the project that we did together and to hear a little bit of your personal feedback about what happened and why do you think it worked and you know who it could benefit in the future. So thank you very much for talking to me today. And maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself, what you do at Globis, and then tell us a little bit about the project that we did. Thank you, Lina. Thank you for having me here today. So I'm working for Globis, Globis Corporation, which is the largest Japanese business school. Maybe outside of Japan, it's not really well known, but as many business professionals as you ask in Japan, I'm pretty much sure they're going to tell you that they heard Globis somewhere. So I don't work in the university. We work in a close collaboration with the university. I work in a corporate section where I work with corporate clients, mostly big Japanese organizations. And I design and uh, implement corporate education programs for those Impressive. clients. And is it often that the Japanese clients choose to learn about Chinese culture or Chinese business culture? Or was it the first? It was actually one of the first. We have a collaboration with SEEPS in mm, China. Mm, so mm. sometimes we run programs where we bring Chinese people to Japan and then vice versa to let them know about different family business cultures and other. But mm. in this particular program, it was more a focus on sales and marketing people who wanted mm-hmm. to explore new retail in e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not a surprise that China is one of the most advanced nations in the world in this area, Mm -hmm. or shall Mm -hmm. I say the most advanced nations in the world. And it was their decision, you know, to go to China and to learn that directly from China. So basically this 150-year-old corporation requested Globus to create educational program to train their business executives and emerging or upcoming decision makers about the best practices and uh, the development of new retail and e-commerce. And so there were 40 participants from the corporation attending, right? Yeah. And uh, what was the position in, in the corporation of the people? Because they were from Germany, from UK, from Japan, from Indonesia, from Singapore from the United States, right? Yes. They they had the same position or a little bit different? It depends really on the local country and the Mm. region and what position that country has within the region, within the company. So Mm. they were not exactly the same positions, but these were younger leaders Mm. that were in management roles Mm -hmm. and uh, further expected to lead their respective regions. Mm-hmm. but taking into account the headquarters direction, headquarters mm-hmm. strategic mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. So they kind of need to both, you know, create the regional strategy, mm-hmm. but also influence the headquarters strategy mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. their region, right? So they have to understand both, understand local needs be innovative enough to inspire those local needs and at the same time align that with the overall mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. So yeah, positions, I cannot really say exactly, but yeah, yeah, yeah. more or less mm-hmm. 
emerging decision makers and mm-hmm, expected mm-hmm. future leaders of mm-hmm. their companies. So like yeah. country managers, expected to be country managers. Expected to be country mm-hmm. managers in the future could be yeah, the yeah, right. Yeah. The Makes right. Sense. And so yeah. what do you what do you think was their feel? What did they learn? What was the biggest takeaway from this? In particular, I'm interested in how different countries perce- perceived this content. I think yeah, it was we had very a, different understood. We had a few Chinese people. I think for them probably it looked differently. But mm-hmm. there were some of the things that I remember I think to tell about all the comments were that, you know, it's definitely brought them something absolutely new that they never thought about before. I mean, for for every participant, these were different aspects. Is there any one aspect that you remember that you were surprised too about? Just about the communications with Hmm. consumers, Mm -hmm. a variety of ways to do that and the potential effects that it could Mm -hmm. have. That, that connection, establishing that real connection mm-hmm. that I also mm-hmm. talked about before yeah. was mentioned repeatedly. One of the other aspects that they said they were a little bit surprised, maybe especially from Japanese side, because the company focuses now a lot on ESG. Mm-hmm. And in general, that's very much, at least yeah. in Japan, a trend. Many yeah. corporations try to, you know, this environment, social yeah, government, yeah. having a focus on that. But at least for the people that we met during the immersion, they mm-hmm. kind of said they don't, they don't really care, like whether mm-hmm. the company that produces is, you know, environmental friendly or goes mm-hmm. that direction or not. So mm-hmm. they kind of felt that there's also room for, you know, educational mm-hmm. initiatives mm-hmm. that would educate the consumer in China and maybe through that educational experience and maybe some interesting activities mm-hmm. attracting them to their brand, for example. Mm-hmm. Or but maybe... There are many brands, I think, uh, that are imported brands that still have this claim. But basically, you need to be very, very careful not to offend the local brands by kind of positioning yourself as superior in any way. So for that reason, it is not really encouraged to show that you're in any way more, you know, value driven <laughs> yeah. for the higher goals or whatever. So that I think is the key takeaway for sure. And um, I think you're, I'm really, really happy that there was a conversation about this as a follow-up. Yeah, exactly. And that, and then also like they were also rethinking, you know, like it encouraged them to rethink things like, you know, how, how they use their resources, including human Mm -hmm. resources and how they could do that more creatively and more effectively, given that Mm -hmm. the world is more and more digital because still they do so many things like old way, you know, mm-hmm. by dealing with the consumer directly and mm-hmm. focusing only on that. And it's really like in September, we're going to have a second phase, mm-hmm. second module of the program. And it's going to be really interesting to see how all these broad ideas, where did they settle and how mm-hmm. did they digest them and where mm-hmm. did that come to? So that's, I think, definitely it broadened their perspective and it mm-hmm. gave them very many different out ideas. But yeah, mm-hmm. the question is how how they're actually going to integrate it all and synthesize these into a certain, you know, business mm-hmm. proposition for their particular regions. Because you cannot just copy paste the no, strategy yeah. mm-hmm. and the way how things are in China. You really 
have to adapt it to the local context. Hmm. I'm very impressed that you didn't uh, focus on China market executives in particular, because uh, we are doing China business casts, which always focuses specifically on China market practices. But now it seems like uh, together with you, we made it like a benchmark for the global corporations to look up to when trying to develop some kind of very fast, dynamic, effective strategy on the go, kind of. So thank you for that. And uh, we will be sharing after we finish speaking a brief interview recaps from the debriefing sessions with the participants from our sessions with the corporation. And later on, we will make all of those video materials that were filmed when walking around Shanghai available for all the listeners of China Business Cast. So that's nice. Thanks for talking to me today. And hopefully we'll uh, be talking to you soon again. Thank you, Lina. And thank you for all the effort and wonderful job done by Litao. Thank you. About me, I've been in China for 12 years and I'm accountable for more than a thousand B2B meetings, which I hosted because I'm fluent in Chinese. So I help foreign brands enter China market. And many of your questions I will be answering myself because this is actually my direct experience of the past eight years. This is my day-to-day work. I am particularly pleased to see that my vision for this was to keep it as personal as possible, because when you work in uh, international environments, it's very difficult for you to imagine yourself in the position of somebody in China, somebody in China doing some strange things, eating strange things, you know, living in a strange way. They're leading a team, they're doing business, but It feels like it's a very big gap to fill between where you are in the world and that leader, which we're trying to expose you to here in China. And so my dream was to kind of be able to communicate that through personal stories and examples and, you know, like as uh, down to earth as possible. So um, maybe Athena, you can say a few things about yourself and then I will get into the questions. Cool. Thank you, Lena. Hello, everybody. Glad to see everyone here. And thanks for taking the time because I'm also looking forward to the conversation that we're about <laughs> to have. My name is Athena Zhu. I'm from New Zealand originally, and I have been in China now for seven years. I first arrived with the Boston Consulting Group um, on a project that sent me here. I joined Heineken after I visited China, came to China on a project, and I ended up working with Heineken here for about five years. And then uh, you had a very interesting title. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean? Excellent something? <laughs> Basic, I mean, this is one of the things I have, I, I personally feel in, especially in the last five years of my career, and even, yeah, is that titles are far more kind of bespoke these days. Mm. Yeah. Well, I should say the roles themselves are mm. not as classic you know, boom, 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 whatever the, mm, the channels mm. or columns are of of work. It's, uh, and because, yeah, the world is changing. The structure is mm. changing. Like I see there's questions here about e-commerce. One of the classic mm-hmm. questions, where do you put e-commerce? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, that definition of what is what function and how do they all collaborate gets uh, redefined based on whatever the needs are of a specific market or company. And so this is the case at Heineken China was that we decided to structure the company as such where there is, because China is very, very large. It's the size of Europe, mm-hmm. right? But it's one country, one country. So then you have... Uh, a bit um, bigger, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, geographically, it's bigger. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
then you have a national team that runs national whatever stuff like national marketing but could you imagine one marketing team for all of europe you know it doesn't really make sense right but then you still need to have that central national team so Mm. that's some of the structures that uh, whereby then you know in heineken china they decided to structure it where we had marketing brand marketing and then we also had field sales or the sales teams that are Mm -hmm. actually on the ground in each of the provinces and then sort of everything else was parked under me and that's Mm -hmm. why the title Mm -hmm. was commercial excellence director because it Mm -hmm. wasn't the marketing director it wasn't the sales director it wasn't a commercial director which then you would assume covers both marketing and sales and so then they came up uh you know asked me what did i want to be called and i was like well guess something commercial and uh, we came up with a commercial excellence director yeah yeah that was the background of that Well, thank you for that short opening speech. I think uh, that is very interesting to know that sometimes title doesn't mean a lot, uh, but sometimes it can. So we will probably not go into each question that you have submitted, but we will touch upon the specific uh, chapters. One of them is business-specific questions, where people had very precise questions relating to their current situations. Another one was China-based questions that are very open questions related to China experience and China as a market that's very unfamiliar for some. Then there are leadership-based questions and team-based questions that are about managing a team and showing up as a leader. And then we have the career-based questions. So maybe that's where you started shortly telling us how you made a career (laughs) by just jumping on a plane and coming to China. I think I want to start with a question from Joseph in U.S., He said that I was interested in your examples about brands having to be flexible and change as they get consumer feedback. So this is asked for Elijah. It seems like there's a tough line to walk between for a brand being true to itself and changing with consumer feedback. So how does a brand successfully maintain its mission and integrity while changing appropriately with the current environment? Mm -hmm. That was the question. And I think that it would be very interesting for Athena to tell us her story with her brand, Yale. How do you contain your integrity and then still don't get overwhelmed by doing everything yourself. Yeah. Well, I think it's also about, uh, yeah, listening to the consumer feedback and adjusting, Mm. right, to consumer feedback. I think this for me is one of the funnest parts of uh, being a uh, brand builder in today's world. I think being a brand builder, brand building is always this balance of art and science, and I think that these days the science part has become even more scientific. Yeah, there are you much know. more numbers. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And rather than in the past you kind of build a brand, let's say you're designing a campaign or you're, or you're figuring out what the key messages of your brand this season, you uh, you do as much research as you can and then you basically get in a room and throw some ideas around and then and then you design it all and you you put a lot of money behind it and and you know put it on billboards and what have you. And you kind of just hope for the best, right? Mm. And you don't really know what's really going to happen necessarily. Nowadays, with the, especially with e-commerce and social media, you're getting constant feedback. Mm. And I think the, the best campaigns or the best brand communications these days need to be like from instant. Like yesterday, somebody said this, or this morning, somebody said this, mm. this is going viral this afternoon. What are we going to talk about? Mm. It, you know, mm. And so that kind of uh, pace of brand building, which is more externally oriented, like Mm. listening more to the outside world, more data driven, I think is very exciting and fun Mm. to play with as a brand builder. But indeed, you have to strike the balance. And I think, yeah, I mentioned this in my interview session about being clear on your core, what exactly is your core Mm -hmm. and what is everything else that is peripheral to your core. Mm. So I would say 
that's a question where you don't want to be answering that question in the moment where you need to make the decision. You, mm. you want to be thinking about that question well in advance. It's also not a question that's locked in stone, so be ready to review it. Mm. But have always an answer of what's the core of the brand mm. and make that define really what it has to be and not not over define it. And then everything else that is flexible based on feedback. You know, so for us, our brand is core of our brand is it's plant based, made of coconut with zero added sugars and flavoring. It's it's Mm -hmm. as natural as it can be. Uh, That's the core. And then, for example, we thought, you know, hey, this is a very functional market here as well. People are not as abstract when it comes to brand building. They they like to know, like, what is this thing good for? They're quite Mm -hmm. pragmatic. So we had one hypothesis, which was, hey, this is going to sell better with the communication that it just says zero added sugar, zero added flavor, zero dairy, zero, zero, zero. That's also quite a common thing you see, Mm -hmm. right, where it's just like a bunch of zeros to explain that this thing is healthy. We put that out there. But at the same time, we put one out there that said, did you know coconut can be eaten like this? Mm. So it was something a bit more fun, mm. yeah. you know, which is also Relatable part of our brand. Also. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also part of our brand to be fun and, yeah. and energetic. But we, we weren't sure, like, you know, we had concerns about that one because we've been seeing that the market has always been quite more responsive to just practical selling points mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily more emotive. Like, what does that even mean? Like, why would I want to try something that's made? Like, what's this yeah. thing about coconut, you know? So we got to test both of those and actually the one – with the, hey, did you know coconuts could be eaten like this? Mm. Got better click through. Yeah. Because so it's engaging. Yeah. Because the Chinese consumers are used to being talked to directly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like exactly. it's yeah. not somebody far away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's also just, uh, you don't know how some, the, the trends are changing. You can't, I feel personally that you can't call all the trends, right? Mm-hmm. As much as we would like to believe we can. But I think, you know. There's plenty of literature and, uh, and research out there that now shows that, yeah, like nobody is ever as good at predicting the future as they think they are, right? And so I think this is a world now, especially that you don't have to try to predict the future. You can test the future, hmm. like put things out there and test and see what comes back. Mm-hmm. And, and because it's very, it. the future comes very fast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like it's very quick. Yeah. So I yeah. think uh, to sum up, it feels like you need to answer two questions. What do you hold on to and what do you let go of? And it's a life philosophy of Chinese people. Hold yeah. on tightly, let go lightly. Yeah, that's right. So it right, feels yeah. like this is your advice. <laughs> yeah, that's my advice. Yeah, define your brand is going to be more than just the core, but know what your core is. And then all the other stuff is is open to a feedback and and even then the core is also open to feedback but it's probably mm. more that the the time of change is not so fast like you wouldn't change mm. your core brand identity uh elements like you know every month or something but maybe you mm. you'll need to change it every every three years at least yeah, you know yeah. probably two years and and even like again as you as you move closer or further out from the core you, the frequency of changes uh yeah so mm-hmm. have that kind of concept in mind in your mm-hmm. in your brand definition yeah Then another question also by Joseph was for Helen. Could you give one or two examples of how the regulatory environment has changed in China in the last two years? So this question I will answer myself because uh, we just worked with a very interesting project. It is a European Union uh, brand of toothpaste and the European Union laws now do not allow animal testing. However, this brand was really desired by Chinese consumers and started to become imported illegally through shipping to 
you know, it's called Taigo. Mm. So shipping to parents, shipping to friends. And then uh, there was a significant market. And then there were more brands that were desired by Chinese consumers. So then in 2017, the Chinese law suddenly allowed toothpaste that is not animal tested to be sold on e-commerce channels. So it was actually consumer-driven change because the consumers were voting with their money and uh, showing that regardless of whether this law changes or not, we will keep buying this product because we believe in this product. And the European Union doesn't go and play games with their value systems, right? Like this is what European Union is famous for, is for the normative power. And so they stood very firmly. And uh, this year, actually on May 1st, there was a new addition to this animal testing law. And uh, now it says that if you have traditional ingredients in the toothpaste, meaning no novelties, then it can be sold through brick and mortar stores as well. Hmm. And recently, there's also been an update to the cosmetics. Correct. correct. So it's the same, but not really cosmetics, but it's more... Uh, not even health, like cleaning function. Mm, so nothing to be, yeah, yeah, something less exciting, less exotic. But still, it, it's very clear that we usually think that China is not democratic at all and it doesn't listen to its people. But actually, the consumers voted with their own money and the Chinese government had nothing to do but to accept this change. And then the policy changed uh, following the needs and the desires of the consumers. So me, as a person who brings foreign brands to Chinese market, what I'm always advocating is what Athena also says, is you need to make this product affordable and desired by the Chinese masses, understandable to the consumers. And then there will be nobody who can stop you from selling it to them. How does this work with cross-border commerce when there's a lot of people in a lot of different countries that want products or services from other countries. So, you know, with local regulations and different laws, you know, how does that work when people want things in three days and they want to shop from wherever they want and they want to get a product from wherever they want it from? How does that work in like the cross-border commerce world? I think uh, cross-border e-commerce is very different in China as compared to everywhere else in the world. So everywhere else in the world, like if I have a shop in China, lina.com, you order in UK and then lina.com sends you the product to UK. But in China, cross-border e-commerce has a few additional layers of complexity. And this was also invented as a result of consumer demand by the Chinese government. So there are bonded warehouses and special economic development zones. Now they have like a hundred of them in every province. And your products would be shipped in that bonded warehouse and would be imported only after a consumer pays for the product. So the government is very particular in selecting the products that are allowed to go through this cross-border e-commerce method of sales. And the tricky part is that the list can always be adjusted. So my personal example was that in 2015, we started shipping salmon through cross-border e-commerce because at that time it was allowed, but then in one week uh, it suddenly got uh, delisted from this positive list for cross-border e-commerce. So then there are a lot of uh, still political issues and issues of uh, preserving the monopoly within the country, but uh, it is very valuable channel for some brands that are 
of high value added kind of products, so cosmetics, any consumer goods really. And so the government is highly invested in that. And now it reached a very big revenue in the past few years and continues growing. So there are like whole businesses set up on this particular business model. Another set of questions is China-based questions that is more cultural. And uh, the first question I would like to open up with is, the question is, while working with Chinese companies, I often feel the difference between China and Japan. We're also puzzled that they don't follow deadlines and by the changing rules suddenly. And they don't explain the clear reason and saying it's Chinese style. And these are very difficult to understand. But on the other hand, I think we have to respond to the differences in the culture and the business customs with Japan. So how can we build a good relationship? So maybe you can explain a little of how you managed to. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I, think I love the question. Everybody feels this. Uh, Heineken's yeah, a Dutch so. company. I think in some ways it's similar to the Japanese and uh, straightforward, you know, like uh, pretty uh, structured uh, people. I think you're right. Absolutely. You know, and good, good on you for having the um, clarity to say, hey, we have to think of how to respond and, and figure out how to work together, even if it feels uncomfortable. I would say it, yeah, the key is it's try to understand the individual's situation is my, is my tip. It is true that China is harder to plan here. Things move around. It starts from the top because even the CEO's calendar is not locked down. And so if their calendar is not locked down and, and any time he picks, he or she picks up the phone and says, I need to speak with Athena. I have to go to the office, yeah. you know, like. And because of the hierarchy, right? And so therefore, it, yeah, it begins at that level. So even, even, yeah, even the party or whoever, they, they will schedule, they can schedule meetings quite last minute. And so that whole thing trickles down to everybody. So I think it begins with just recognizing that that's the reality that the Chinese, your Chinese counterparts are dealing with, that their schedules are changing a lot. Yet they do manage to get a lot of things done here. Um, Very quickly. Yeah. So I would say try not to focus on that part of the relationship, which is understandably irritating, but you can't change it, you know. And so try to then focus on, you know, like finding the common ground and, and where it is that you you know you have a shared interest with them and see if we can find wins there and and build the trust and because the flip side of it that is good if you ever need it is if you're ever in an urgent situation, they'll they'll figure out that yep. okay, they need to drop what they're planning to do to help you. So it does you you there there will be times when you might be able to benefit from it as well. So I would say, first of all, yeah, you're gonna have to accept that that is reality and it's the whole system around them. It's not just this one individual trying to give you a hard time. And so <laughs> if that's the case, you know, what can you do to Try and uh, understand their their angle, but get get what you need. It does mean like can't ever really leave things to the last minute here. You know, if it's really urgent, you've got to. As in, if it's really important, you know, and there's more stakeholders involved on your side, try to plan a little bit more margin of time. Mm. That's just what it takes. But once you've got enough trust, you will find that with them, you'll get a faster response than anything. You know, because they're because they could be available if you have a good relationship with them. You can give them a call or ping them a message and you're going to get an answer. You could get an answer really quickly. So I it think, can pay uh, off once you invest in that relationship. For me, when I'm teaching the German business representatives, we focus on two keywords. One is efficiency 
And the other one is effectiveness. So in Germany, they want to estimate and manage and control and calculate efficiency. And here in China, being effective is one phone call. So then you just need to know how to get to that top position of urgency to make the person make that phone call. And some companies have people who just are there to make two phone calls a month and the salary is paid off after these two phone calls. From the question by Mr. Brian from the United States, and he asked, how did you build the communities and interest groups and how did you get started? So maybe both of you can introduce a little bit about yourselves. Yeah, I'm the first Western influencer in China, and I've, I've created over probably 2,000 videos for Chinese social media. So I'm mainly video-based. So that's platforms like Billy Billy, Weibo, Douyin, and then Xiaohongshu, and just video-based platforms. And so my community was anyone that was interested in UK culture. So I guess the way I built it is that I made videos about a subject that people were interested in. And then I built a community around that by making fan groups, you know, interacting with people in the video, interacting with comments. So that's how I got started, really. And yeah. then later you stopped being the KOL yourself? Yeah. Yes. And then, and then in 2018... <laughs> I was helping, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. So I, I now have a video production company where we help from governments to brands to individual KOLs to continue growing their communities and to through video production and um, making you know not only their brands to be shown clearly but also making it viral in a sense and pe people actually enjoying it not just saying this is my brand but this is my brand and this is something you gain you, you can get some value out of this video so that's kind of where we help these companies and governments how about JJ? Maybe you can tell us a bit uh, how you started, what you do, and uh, how did you build the community and interest group? And I think we had a uh, lot of talks on the video also before. Mm -hmm. can yes, like, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I was actually um, a yoga instructor, and then I feel out like there was a not a lot of uh, retreat workshops happening in 2013 in Shanghai, mm -hmm. so. I was thinking, okay, why not I inch, uh, just uh, finding some really good teachers and uh, just like contact with them and to have a retreat and workshop in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So that at first place, I uh, they bring me lots of clients and I find location mm -hmm. and logistics, do the contents and create the retreat concept in Shanghai, which is quite successful. Uh, like every week, like yeah, every <laughs> weekly, we continue to having this kind of mindfulness escapes from sh big Shanghai city. And now what you're doing with the pop-up stores? Yeah, so so actually I was hired by a care center mm -hmm. and as the like also community builder and mm -hmm. then I feel like okay we have a lot of place on our like sphere so we have mm -hmm. to do something so that's why we leverage lots of uh, pop-up like mm -hmm. brands together mm -hmm. putting together and becoming like a pop-up store mm -hmm. and the the Anyi actually uh we was created this uh, concept to the government and mm -hmm. they was really love it because mm -hmm. uh, they think it's good traffic people can have their nightline mm -hmm. can can see all the brands offline and so we put a lot of money on those offline events mm -hmm. and those like 
first very success, like big pop-up stores, and mm-hmm. later on, lots of uh, small brands they have their own pop-up stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so basically, just like contact with different um, brands, mm-hmm. put them together, and then yeah, it's quite interesting. Every time I feel like they have different concepts, mm-hmm. so. So in, in that hence, I also bring fitness together with all those uh, brands and pop-up. This question is from Emmanuel from Indonesia, and he asks, do you think this strategy is more successful than online promotion on social media? And uh, because nowadays many people prefer to browse social media to find something interesting rather than go out to explore interesting things. So do you think it's more successful through pop-up stores, then... Uh, I think it uh, uh, depends on the products we mm-hmm. mentioned. So if like more like FB, like a food, beverage, mm-hmm. the people will for sure want to still want to taste mm-hmm. first and to want to feel it first. Like some makeup, yes, they know it's good on the KOL and the recommend, but they really want to try if it's really good on individual is mm-hmm. different so those makeup and the fb products will mm-hmm. more like need to be more engaged with offline pop-up mm-hmm. stores events yeah i think uh, what we talked about mm-hmm. with my new project um, with fruit wine mm-hmm. is that not only you need to taste it but you also need mm-hmm. how need to know how to position it and what is the context so i think yeah. that we will collaborate soon on is bringing the wine to the art galleries. Yeah, right? yeah. So that then this wine is not only a product, but it is an experience. Yeah, you can go to an elegant place yeah. with your girlfriends and hang out. Is that like you say like you pick up the keywords of your brands mm-hmm. and then you put into the some like a customer use mm-hmm. environment. Some mm-hmm. like office, we were more engaged like an office picture picture for mm-hmm. a while we can engage with the gallery different like cross like a market mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. do a more like interesting interact mm-hmm. with different concepts because so, so some products people will never buy until yeah. they tasted it yeah so if you have to create an occasion and only then they will be yeah i feel like it's really good for new brands mm-hmm. as well oh, right. because if you start yeah. like advertising a completely new brand it's hard to get that base of followers but I, I don't know mm-hmm. I haven't done but is it like it's more personal right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so to get that like foundation of community mm-hmm. on like the you, first layer yeah I, yeah I feel like it would be very easy to be like hey yeah that's I'm the owner of this brand yeah that's more you know? the easy way to getting brand awareness as yeah. a small friend mm-hmm. like you show up everywhere you let people know okay here <laughs> you're you doing everything. yeah you, you press uh, you, you present this brand mm-hmm. and people remember oh you you are instead of they were having their keywords mm-hmm. like eco green mm-hmm. fitness mm-hmm. they were putting you in this box then later let, they use yes. the keyword for e-commerce yes right? yeah they mm-hmm. will also have our e-commerce key, keywords you hashtag. can hashtags and same like Xiaohongshu, you can mm-hmm. find us like very easily mm-hmm. because we uh, offline we were like repeating our keywords mm-hmm. more on and on yeah. as a small like brand. I think another thing is like, online marketing. It's very difficult to get feedback because right. they don't like yes, it. They'll just turn it off. Yeah. But yeah. offline, you're like, why they like it? Mm-hmm. They'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so every time, like, uh, especially for food 
brand I'm working with, like I always ask our clients to come and see mm-hmm. how does that taste? How can we improve our products in different and ways? You get real impressions yeah. of people filmed, so it's not fake uh, yeah. reviews, yeah. fake accounts. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. no. So it's more inter- directly channels mm-hmm. to to see. So he also asked another question to Maggie, but maybe Will can answer this one. He says that uh, there are many other competitors doing the same, um, introducing products uh, for money. Mm. So how do you keep your audience focused? I think it's somehow a bit related to what we talked about. Maybe you can build up on this based on your experience. I call it a successful KOL. The end goal is that they click into your video, not because of the title, but because your face is in the thumbnail. And that's all they need. Yeah, that's all you need. And uh, once you've reached that level, you just have to keep your frequency up. And then your audience will put your video and your existence into their daily routine. So Mm -hmm. I I got a lot of fans of it. Every time, every day I eat lunch, I will watch your video. And so Mm -hmm. if you stop updating, eventually they're going to forget about you and replace you with someone else. So mm-hmm. you have to make yourself part of their routine. Then you can't really, you can't really go wrong. You know, it doesn't matter what you up- upload. They like you as a person. They'll watch whatever you say. I really like what you said that people usually use your content to entertain themselves during lunch and this yeah. becomes a habit. Yeah. So then I have talked to quite a few Chinese brands that are huge. And when they launch a product, it reaches 100 million in sales in the first year. Mm-hmm. And how they build the product is they will basically identify the need of the person. So it could be a lunch, yeah. like entertainment. It could be afternoon tea, you know, the small cheer up moments that you can share with your co- colleagues. Mm-hmm. And they will build the, the whole content or the product around that particular time during the day, which is every day. Yeah. 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 It's just uh, become part of a, a habit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we were shooting, she was saying that because the Japanese consumers don't always know what to do with these products, so then uh, something like pop-up stores or engagement in person would help a lot because the people in China need to understand how this fits into their lifestyle and how to consume it, how to use it, how this becomes, uh, even though it's Japanese, but it feels like it's made for me. So how is that possible? So this is something that Maggie emphasized. And then uh, Mr. Shogun from Japan was asking, is it effective for Japanese products that are not so famous in China to expand their awareness through pop-up stores? So Maggie kind of started talking about it, but maybe you can give examples of how it works. I think it also depends on the products like categories you want to pop in, in China, tap into China. But uh, for small brand, as we mentioned that is definitely to get a brand awareness at first to get into the China but later on you might more have like contents, videos, pictures that mm-hmm. you can post online to have more brand awareness and contact with the KOL created contents on social side will give you more exposure for for sure for small brand as the mm-hmm. beginning most of Brands are doing this right now. And later on, you crack, uh, you collection all the database. You can have your own community and loyalty mm-hmm. customer service and study. With these data, you can push on the next step, whether you decide to have an offline shop or online shops mm-hmm. and on Timor or on like a small 
training on many programs also. Mm-hmm. You can do it in China right now. So the question was, what is your main decision-making process when shopping online? Mm-hmm. And shopping online could be, and he listed a few that he thinks uh, should be important considerations in other markets. So reviews, the uniqueness of the product, value for money, and maybe it is a niche product with a story. So I will start by uh, giving some answers from my experience. And um, I just wanted to say that Taobao in China doesn't only have all of these opportunities, but also it has the opportunity for you to connect with a real person who just recently bought the product. So basically me being a Taobao user, I often get people who are messaging me and asking me, saying, Lina, how did you like the quality of this dress? Lina, did you think that this was a good quality product? Do you think the color is the, the same color as it was described in the, in the description? And so I think it is not only that, but also the second part is that consumer service will be really, really well developed. And uh, usually when you log into a platform and you're looking at the product, it will be expected that if you write a question, the reply has to come in 15 seconds. And the question can be any kind of question. So, for example, it's very typical for a fashion brand to educate them, uh, consumer service representatives by training them as a stylist. Usually fashion brands will be training their customer service representatives online to work like stylists. So if people come and say what will look good with these shoes, or what will look good with this jacket, like the customer service representative will be able to recommend something from their store and say, well, I see that your size is this size and this color is very trendy and this is, you know, the latest season's development. And they will be talking to you like uh, they will talk to the best friend. So I think this is the very unique aspect of the Chinese e-commerce ecosystem. And this is not uh, nice to have. This is expected. So whereas we in the West, we will be doing our own research and then click a button, pay, and expect the thing to get delivered. This is really the opposite. They want the sales representative to tell you how to buy, what to buy. And then it was developed in China in this way, mainly because there were a lot of new products coming in and the products keep developing. And usually the supermarkets and the hypermarkets and any kind of offline shopping spaces they're filled with products. There are probably three times more products in any kind of supermarket in China. And because of space uh, limitation, it is a much tinier space. So the sales representatives in China will not know how to explain to you about these products, especially in the food grocery stores and stuff. So that's why this e-commerce became an alternative where people attracted uh, clientele because they were very consumer friendly and they knew all the answers. Like if I go to a store and ask, uh, is this milk imported from New Zealand? They will not tell me yes, no. But if I go online and I ask this question, not only they will tell me about New Zealand's cows, they will tell me about the fresh air, maybe even the temperature in New Zealand today. This will be the normal conversation. And so to get back to you, maybe you can tell us how do you consider the reviews, the uniqueness, the value for money? And well, for me, if I have something specific in mind, I want to shop something that I just put the keyword in the searching link, mm-hmm. then first, what would attract my attention? The cheap price. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. products with cheap price. Cause I would go through those links. Sometimes I also buy expensive products, mm-hmm. but for those expensive products, I have to go 
go to their link, see their pictures, how they design, how they design their packages, and also all the detailed explanation of their products. How, what kind of certifications do they have, and what kind of reviews other customers are giving to this product? If this is for expensive products, how much would be an expensive product? Depends on what categories. For example, if I'm purchasing a pair of headphones,、mm-hmm. I would consider 400 RMB would be would be expensive products. 400 RMB is like 60 dollars. Yes. Yes, 60. 67. Yeah. Let's let's just say if I want to buy headphones, then、mm-hmm. I would just put headphones in the searching box. Then first, I will check all those cheap ones and、mm-hmm. check their reviews. Whether like those people would say these headphones are just Garbage, don't buy it.、Mm-hmm. Then I will go to those expensive ones. I will detailly like see、Analyze. all the yeah all the information it explains. So for you to buy headphones, how long does it take for you to make this research? If I'm buying expensive ones, it will take me three days. Three days. Yeah, three、and、days. Be coming back. Will you talk to friends? Yes,、yeah. for sure. And also, I would like to hear their opinion, especially if they have bought the same pair of headphones. Will you carry them from your friends? Yeah, if they have them, of course I would try them. And meanwhile, after these three days, if I really purchase this pair of headphones,、mm-hmm. I would try it. If I don't don't feel good, I just return it. I was just going to ask you to kind of build upon that. I, you just said something that was kind of wild, which was I think thirty million or however however many was sellers in the WeChat platform. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, especially since your your consultant role is to help. Bring you know brands into China. What's the regulatory environment like in terms of if you want to start up a company, you want to sell a brand from the government's perspective? What are the regulations you have to deal with in order to be able to do that? Is it fairly low barrier to entry, or is it, or is it high, or somewhere in the middle? So we focus on food and beverage, and then as we call it, tasty experiences. So sometimes. We go into this, you know, pet food or something like that. And so, for food and beverage in particular, it is very difficult to import because all the customs, as Helen was saying, is very different. Some procedures are very unprecedented, and some of the ingredients that are very usual overseas will not be used in the same way in China. And then, some food ingredients that I eat every day in Lithuania will not be considered food in China. So then,、uh, it really depends on the product, how the market will be regulated. But definitely, when it's coming into China through the customs, it is much more heavily regulated as compared to when it is produced locally in China. Now, the difference between China and overseas is that China is the first to file system regarding trademarks. So usually, anybody who is thinking about working with China in three years' time should register the trademark today. And that means the trademark should not only be registered in the main category, such as if I'm selling wine, then I'm protecting my brand within the wine category. But also, I need to think about wine glasses. I need to think about aprons. I need to think about T-shirts. I need to think about maybe cups holders, and all of the brand,、uh, you know, you know, additional attributes that you might use for marketing. All of this needs to be protected. So the very big difference between the Chinese brand developers. And developers of brands overseas is that the Chinese brand developers will first register everything in all the categories. This will be number one <laughs> because of the market regulations. 
And because the Chinese tendency is to piggyback on the success of somebody else. So then if I'm consulting a client, my first question is, what will happen when you are successful? What are you scared of? So when we were working with somebody from Netherlands who's selling a greenhouse, greenhouse equipment, then we also protected rose plants under their trademark because people can use their name to sell roses that will grow better because they're, you know, supported by this company. So there are a lot of nuances. Now, from the technical side, I think the uniqueness of China is that you need to be at the same time a business person, but you need to talk to the B2Bs in a B2C manner. So it's not a B2B conversation. You always need to give much more explanation. And one of the key services that we do in, in the company is we recreate company profile. That is so the explanation, like your website, where you explain everything about your family, about your you know, upbringing, about because what the brands want to do when they work in China, they want to create a legacy. They want to create some kind of change. So then when you start talking to people, you will realize that there is a lot of personal conversation ongoing. And then after 50-minute meeting, only 10 minutes in the very end, sometimes even you know, when you're leaving through the door, the key question of why this meeting at all happened will be asked. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, Lina, and then I know, okay, it's coming. <laughs> so I think uh, the technical elements are sometimes easier to resolve because you can hire a lawyer, you know, but then all of these cultural elements will be something very hard to wrap your head around. This is the tricky part. Hey. Just to remind you, today we were listening to parts of conversations that we had when training 40 business managers from a 150-year-old Japanese corporation. Soon we will be making uh, parts of the trainings available. We made in total more than nine hours of content, and four and a half hours of this content will become publicly available soon. So please subscribe and follow us on social media. We are making it live and active again. Facebook, WeChat, perhaps you on Instagram. So please keep in touch and make sure you share it with your friends who are interested in opening up their mind to different uh, business practices and best case studies of what is possible to do with business globally. Thanks for listening today and have a great day. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.